All right. Ah, here we are. My name is Jordan. Uh, for those of you who <clears throat> don't know me, um, so happy to see you all here this morning. Um, but let's start off this morning with, with just a, a question. <clears throat> Do you believe in a God that can change the course of events in history? So this was a question asked in a well-known sociological study in a book I read recently. And the answer of one woman was, no, just the ordinary one. I remember um, shortly after 9-11, my mother, used, she was always talking to neighbors on the block, but she was talking to a neighbor around the other side of the block. And in this conversation, it became like the question sort of steered to the topic of God and also 9-11. And the neighbor asked this question, if God exists, why doesn't he come down and intervene? Why doesn't he come down and intervene? Sort this mess out. And for me, um, at 12 years old, hearing my mother recount this story, this is the first time I'd ever really thought about this before. That the God that many people assume isn't a God who would intervene in the world. And yet, we long for God to intervene. We long for a, a God who will come in and who will set things straight. Who will set things straight even if we don't know what that would look like or we have our kind of preconceptions of what that should be. And so we're going to be looking at this more today. We're in a series called... Uh, being the church on the, the biblical book of Acts. And during this series, we're seeing how the, the early Christian community, uh, that's, the book of Acts gives a historical overview um, from the time of Jesus' departure for about, it's, it covers about a 30-year span until about AD 66. Um, so during this series, we're seeing how the early Christian community struggled and worked out um, being, being the church. And one of those things that you might have noticed is that we're spending a lot of time in this series applying the text, saying what does the text you know, call us to do? How do we respond? It's, of course, always coming from that starting point of who is God, what has he done, and then who am I, and what am I to do in the light of what God has done? And uh, in this series, it's been really neat to see how God has been at work at our, in our hearts and how God has been at work in our community. Um, it's been it's been cool. One of the cool things of the pastoral role is, is to hear lots of stories of God at work. Um, and, and so I just want to share a few examples um, of God at work since we've started this series in Acts over the, the course of weeks that we've been in it. Um, so Dwight kind of kicked it off in advance by doing a, an overview of Acts, a, 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 a preach on church planning. And we raised that Sunday $8,500 towards new church plants in Canada. Thank the Lord for that. We received following a church on... Pro yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, following uh, the sermon on being bold witness and prophetic words, we received several prophetic words, one for Dwight specifically about his sabbatical being a time of rest, restoration, creativity. Uh, following the sermon on community, we had six people come forward and commit themselves to living in community as, as we are called to being part of the body of Christ. Uh, we had one person offer their place uh, for hosting downtown. We had another person step up and say, I, I want to apprentice in leadership uh, in NDG. 
Uh, last week, you, if you were here, you would have heard following the sermon on healing that uh, Ryan, he was prayed for and he saw relief from, from the, uh, some of the symptoms of OCD that he uh, experiences. And of course, I'm telling you all this not to rejoice in what we've done, but to rejoice in what God is doing. Rejoice in what God is doing. Like, it's amazing, right? That God is at work in this world. That God intervenes. But beyond this, I know these are just little bits and pieces that I've heard. But I also know that God is doing more. Um, And so I want to encourage you, as we're moving through this series, Being the Church, that you would be sharing that in your city group communities. But also, if you feel it's appropriate, please do share it with uh, anybody on our pastoral team. We don't, I, I mean, you never know, but some of these stories might be appropriate to be encouraging for other people uh, to hear as well. But today we're going to be looking at this story at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so to set the context for this, I'm going to be reading the summary paragraph that comes before it in the biblical book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Acts 4 and verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of land or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So what was this all about? It says, you know, no one said that anything that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. What was that about? Well, this was a Christian community that was was characterized by shared uh, resources, characterized by shared resources. They weren't stingy. Uh, they were generous. Uh, they didn't consider themselves as the ultimate owner of the things that they had. Um, they didn't consider themselves ultimate owner of their stuff. Why? It says it here. It says, uh, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to what? To the resurrection of the Lord. To the resurrection of the Lord. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus changed the way that people viewed their stuff. The resurrection of Jesus changed the way people viewed their possessions, that Jesus was alive and he was king, he was Lord over heaven and earth, and that meant then, in return, that they weren't Lord. That everything they had, if he was the creator, sustainer, giver of life, that, well, then it was all a gift, Right? And so this, this, it was through this lens of resurrection reality that people are viewing their, their house through, their livestock through, their resources through. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever applied that to yourself? Have you ever thought about that for your own things, for your own stuff? Like today, today isn't ultimately my day, right? It's a day that you've been given to steward for the Lord. Think about that. Or your apartment. Your apartment isn't actually your apartment. Rather, it's been given to you to steward for the Lord. Or maybe it's your degree. Like I have a degree, it has, you know, Jordan Weeks, Bachelor of Engineering. That's all very nice. Yeah, it has my name on it. But ultimately, it's his, right? And he's entrusted it to me to steward, to take responsibility of, to use for his glory. Isn't that sort of an... 
That's a wild reality. It's an astounding reality that the God of the universe who creates all things, gives life, would actually entrust and allow you to steward things, to give you that responsibility. And so the text gives us an example of one man who was caught up in that vision of shared resources. Um, Someone who was characterized by this type of generosity, Barnabas, uh, let's read it, verse 36, chapter 436. Uh, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas here, he, he's specifically described as an example of that generosity. And it's hard for us to relate to this now, but back then, uh, land and, and family and economic production, these were things that were all very closely tied together, closely connected. And so Barnabas was likely part of a family, right, that was no longer looking out for its own interests, the own interests of the family, but the interests of those not yet within the family, the family of God. And so there's something, we listen to it, and there's something about this that strikes us as very compelling, right? Something idyllic about this. The commonality of the early church. We, we hear it and we're like, oh, I want to be a community like that. A community that cares for those within it and those not yet within it. A, a community that cares for the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable. And we're at a time in history, interestingly enough, that says yes to these ideals. Yes to sharing our resources. Yes to caring for the poor and the vulnerable. But for the early church, see, it wasn't always this way. It wasn't this way for the culture surrounding them. This certainly wasn't Roman culture. This certainly wasn't Greek culture. No, These were new ideas. These were revolutionary ideas that were part of the vision of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached and proclaimed and said he was in his bringing. But these ideas now, they've so shaped and they so infiltrated our society that we now actually assume, for most of us, this is just what progress is. This is just progress, moving towards a society that shares its resources, that cares for the poor and the vulnerable and the needy, that takes care of those not yet within it. And so we, we care and we, we, we hold to these ideals, and yet at the same time, we have, almost li- we have little to almost no interest in God, Right? We want to pursue this vision. This is a vision ultimately from Jesus, right? So we want to pursue this vision of the kingdom of God. And yet at the same time, we want to leave God aside in it. You see the absurdity of this. There's one thinker, I think, who puts this really well. John Mark Sayers, he says, we want the kingdom without the king. We want the kingdom without the king. But this raises a question. With these ideals now so commonplace, right, do we really need the king to bring the kingdom? See, can't we create a society that is kind and generous and compassionate, that cares for the needy and the vulnerable? Can we be good? Can't we be good without God? Do we really need God to create a society like this? And so what I want to do is spend the rest of my time today talking about two reasons why, yes, we do need God. One, that... Our goodness is deceptive, and two, his intervention brings justice. 
Our goodness is deceptive. His intervention brings justice. So first, our goodness is deceptive. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Acts, you read through these stories, and like I mentioned, they sound idyllic. And we wonder, did Luke just have these like rose-colored glasses on as he was describing the early church writing this? But then you read this story. You get to Acts chapter 5, right? And this story reminds us that the corruption of sin was just as present in the early church as it is in the church today. That wherever there is a true move of the Spirit of God, there will also be a false move of the deceiver seeking to parrot it. And so Luke is being honest. He's being honest about the struggles that the church faced. And so let's get into chapter 5. Acts 5 and verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some for himself of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so what did Ananias and Sapphira do? Well, they own a piece of property, they own a piece of real estate, and they're hanging out in this Christian community that's characterized by shared resources, generosity. And Ananias and Sapphira probably knew of Barnabas, and they see what he does. Maybe that's even why Barnabas is called son of encouragement. They see the recognition he gets, they're like, wow, that's great. Maybe we could do that too. And so they have a a little chat between themselves, and they say, maybe we should take that field, that piece of real estate we have, and we'll give it to the church. But they're thinking about it. They're like, wow, we worked so hard for that. Or that was a piece of an, our inheritance. There's so much uh, attached to that. Or money. It's a, such a huge cost. So why don't we do this? Let's not give it all, but say we did. And so that's what they do. Let's not give it all, but say we did. And so they go to Peter and they say, here's, here's all the money for the land. And then they, they pocket, they keep some of it for themselves. But what happens? Peter is given this uh, like prophetic, uh, this, I'll say, startling prophetic insight into the situation. And he tells Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the land? And he goes on to say, you have not lied to man only, but to God. Right? And so you see here that a lie against the Holy Spirit is a lie against God. The Holy Spirit is God. And so they've lied to God. How pathetic is it for us to try and lie against God? When I was uh, younger, we used to spend a lot of time at a cousin's cottage in the summers, and we had a few other friends, uh, parents who had cottages kind of down the way. And we wanted to make the most of those summers. And so we would we got into this habit of sneaking out at night. So we, our parents would go to bed and we'd pretend to go to bed and then we'd open the window and we'd, there was a tree and we'd kind of go along the tree and jump out and get down on the ground. And then we'd run off and we'd, we'd meet up with our other friends and we'd, we'd hang out late into the night. And one night, one of my friends, he just wasn't so stealthy when he left his house. And 
his parents noticed. He didn't. His parents noticed, and they locked the door behind him. And so after we'd done all our hanging out for the evening, he went back to the house, and he just couldn't get inside. And he had to get inside. There was, I think he was working early that morning, um, but it wasn't that time yet. But eventually he got desperate, so he rang the doorbell. And his dad comes to the door, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's, he's like, um, as quickly as he could, right? He's like, oh, it's just out for a morning jog at 4 a.m. <laughs> um, his dad saw right through it. It was, it was a pathetic attempt at deception. Um, and as kids, like my friend, right, we often do a poor job at deceiving our parents. But how much more pathetic is it to try and deceive an all-knowing, all-powerful God? You won't be able to deceive God. In fact, when we lie to God, the one that we're ultimately lying to, the, the one that we're ultimately deceiving, it's ourselves, right? Because he's all-knowing. So why did Ananias and Sapphira, why did they even try and do this? What are they thinking? Peter's told Ananias, um, wasn't this money, the money from the land, wasn't it at your disposal, the land itself too? You had the choice of what to do with it. There, were, there would have been nothing wrong, in other words, with telling Peter like, hey, like, we can't afford to sell the land. Or Peter, like, here's some of the money for the land and we've, we're going to use the rest of it in this other way. There's no obligation. But they don't do that. Why? Well, notice this, that the action of Ananias and Sapphira is outwardly, from all appearances, from what we can see, exactly the same as what Barnabas did, right? Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira, they both sell the land. They both come to the church and bring the money and they lay it at the apostles' feet. They both show generosity. But inwardly, what we can see from this is that Ananias and Sapphira, they don't give a rip about sharing their resources. They don't care about the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. What they really care about is their reputation, right? Wow, wow, look at what Ananias and Sapphira did. They're so generous, they're so good, right? They care about the affirmation of men. Listen, when we don't see ourselves as approved by God, we will seek the affirmation of our community. When we do not see ourselves as approved by God, we will seek the affirmation and approval of our community. And so this is why it is critical that we receive God's grace. Because if you haven't received God's grace, you're going to seek to earn that grace. You're going to seek to earn that approval. And so we can see that the goodness of Ananias and Sapphira was actually a sort of twisted or deceptive goodness. It was like a bad apple. It looks nice on the outside, rotten on the inside. Jonathan Edwards, he calls this common virtue. And that is, there's these, there are these good actions that are motivated, though, by self-promotion and self-protection. And so common virtue says it's motivated by pride. That's propping yourself up, promoting your image. Or if it's not motivated by pride, then it's motivated by fear, It's avoiding the consequences, trying to protect yourself, self-promotion, self-protection. And so for, let's let's take an example. Honesty, it's relevant to our our text, our story. And so if your honesty, let's, let's ask this question, what happens if your honesty is motivated by pride? Well then, 
when you want to be honest with yourself, you're going to say to yourself something like this. I don't want to be like those people out there, right? Those liars and those swindlers. I'm better than that. Or let's say it's not pride. Let's say you're, you're honesty. You want to be honest, but you motivate it by fear. What are you going to say to yourself? Well, if I'm dishonest, it's going to have consequences. I don't want to be, you know, put back in the line socially. I don't want to get set back. I don't want to get found out. And so I'll be honest, right? And so you can see now how both pride and fear, they can produce honesty, but at its root, it's actually self-seeking. And so this is what Jonathan Edwards calls common virtue. So in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they're able to be outwardly generous, but inside rotten, right? It's motivated by inward pride, a desire for the affirmation of other people over them. But maybe you're, you're listening to this and you're like, okay, like I, can, I can see how that can work. But so, like, so what? Why, why does it matter what my giving or my generosity or my honesty and these things, why does it matter what those are motivated by? Like, didn't in the end, didn't the money get to the poor? Weren't people cared for? And, and like, what's the big deal with them just getting a little bit of affirmation to, to kind of drive that process? Well, good question. But here's why it matters. There's a few things, but... <clears throat> When our giving is motivated by our own self-interests, we end up turning people into objects, right? Objects of our own self-promotion. When our giving is motivated by our own self-interest, we end up turning people into objects of our own self-promotion, and we end up hurting them, in many cases, more than actually helping them. Um, to give an illustration of this, in 2016, Hurricane Matthew hit um, the island country of Haiti, and as it often happens in uh, developing countries, when a hurricane hits it, it damages the water systems in the different uh, cities and towns and villages. And this is what happened in Haiti, and um, it compromises that water s- system. And a cholera, uh, a cholera, how do, how do you say it, Sandra? Cholera, yeah. And so there was a cholera outbreak. <laughs> there was a cholera outbreak. Um, and... Uh, Samaritan's Purse, which my sister was volunteering for at the time, was, was uh, in, in Haiti. And they were on the ground. And, and, from, and from Haiti, they heard uh, about this outbreak. Well, it was, they were there. But uh, they've heard about particular parts of Haiti that were uh, in dire need of uh, medical support. And there was one place in particular called uh, Rondell, where they heard the hospital there was overwhelmed. Um, and so what they did is they put a small team um, of their medical staff together, taking them from the already small team at the capital city, uh, and they got three donkeys, and they loaded those donkeys up with medical supplies, and they traveled eight hours, because there's like no highways, that kind of stuff, eight hours over this mountain pass to get to Rondell. And the day they arrived in Rondell, the New York Times had just published an article about the ongoing crisis in Haiti, and... Um, they chose, for whatever reason, to highlight this particular community. And so because the New York Times had drawn sort of the the spotlight on this community, suddenly all the international aid organizations wanted to go to that community um, because it was in the limelight. Now, my sister was already there with this group of nurses, and they're working around the clock, and they're like sleeping on tarps, and they have the, the bare critical medical supplies. And they wake up the next morning, and... Uh, they hear a chopper. And it's a small village, so everybody goes out to see you know, what, what's with this chopper. And it lands. And these two guys jump out. 
and they're wearing shorts and polos and like neon colored clothes, aviator glasses. And they're like, hi, we're the so-and-so brothers. And they start just throwing stuff out of the helicopter, like stuff people didn't need actually, like shoes and shirts and tarps and just random stuff. And a guy, another guy gets out and he's got a camera and he's like, hi, we're just reporting here in Rondell, live on the ground in a crisis situation, shakes a person's hand, takes a couple pictures and they get back in the helicopter and within five minutes they're gone. All they left were supplies that were useless for the people there, useless for the cholera crisis, things that people didn't need. In fact, it actually would just damage the local economy, end up hurting, not helping. And all they took were pictures, videos, so they could support their so-called humanitarian organization. You see, these men, <laughs> the so-and-so brothers, they weren't primarily interested in helping others. They were primar- primarily interested in helping themselves. And this is what Ananias and Sapphira are doing in our text. And this is what we do, if we're honest, too, isn't it? But what we see here is that a good action with wrong motivation in the eyes of Jesus is still sin. A good action with wrong motivation is still sin. And so while this, what Jonathan Edwards called this common virtue can produce good deeds, it can produce what we would call behavioral modification, it can't actually get the root of the problem out. It can't root out that deception, the problem of our heart. Because Jesus doesn't want your money, right? He wants your heart. He wants your affections. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, and so remember this question, why can't, why can't we produce like a kind, a good, a generous society? Why do we need the king inside this kingdom? Well, it's because our very goodness is deceptive, right? This fear and the pride, it can restrain our hearts, but it can't actually change our hearts. It can't actually transform our hearts. And so our goodness is deceptive. And then our second point, God's intervention brings justice, Acts 5 and verse 5, and I'll read uh, to the end. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young man came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is a a yikes account. It's, It's somewhat shocking to us. It's it's strange uh, to us. Going back to the, the neighbor that I mentioned at the beginning, we often want God to intervene. But then when God does intervene, we don't like what we see. Right? All Peter does here, if you notice, is all he does is confront. Like He doesn't cast a spell. There's no abracadabra and incantation. Right? Ananias just, refer- just hears Peter's confrontation and he drops dead. And then Sapphira walks in. 
Um, she's given a chance to, to confess, to repent, and she chooses to continue to deceive, to lie to the Holy Spirit, and she too drops dead. And so, if, you know, maybe if this was just one death, we'd be like, be able to kind of, kind of make something up and say, oh, like, this was just a coincidence, like, Ananias, like, he was, had a heart condition, Peter's a really scary guy, and just dropped dead. But with them both dropping dead like this, I mean, both of them dying, this is clearly, this was remembered and recorded precisely because of its surprising nature. Um, and so in both cases, we see that Peter confronts, but it is actually God that ultimately judges. And if you're like me, your initial reaction, you hear this, you read this story, and you, you kind of like protest inside, why does God judge so harshly? Why does God judge so harshly? Like, how could a loving God judge in this way? Um, and if this is your question, this is a very uh, important question, and this is a very good question. Um, as we approach this, though, I have to remind you, you've seen now how we can mask our own uh, selfish motivations and kind of like repurpose them and prop up good deeds, right? And so for, for knowing that's the way we are, then wouldn't our sense of justice be utterly flawed, right? Isaiah 55 and 8 says this, I don't think I put it in there. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so we say, in reading a text like this, we say, I wouldn't have done it that way. I wouldn't have struck Ananias and Sapphira down. But Francis Chan would remind us that's exactly it. That's exactly it. God doesn't think like us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts greater than our thoughts. And so you see, with how we prop ourselves up, we retool our fear and our pride to try and produce good behavior. How we feel about judgment is often related to how we feel about ourselves. See, if we think we're pretty great, if we think we're not that bad, then what is there to judge? What's the need for something to happen, right? But the truth is, the truth is, we are no better than Ananias and Sapphira. Even, even our goodness is deceptive. Even our goodness is twisted. We're rotten. The Bible, the Bible says that it's all our deeds of righteousness are as filthy rags. And so if the God who created you and gave you life does he not, if, if that's who he is, doesn't he have the right to then take it away, to come in judgment if he so chooses? I think one of the, the striking things about this, the reason that it becomes striking to us is that in the Western church, we've become very uncomfortable with the topic of judgment, right? We like to talk about the grace and the love of God. We tend to... Uh, skirt over or avoid or be uneasy with talking so much about God's justice. We like to think about how Jesus multiplied food and healed people and loved his enemies. But this is also the same Jesus who, who pronounced woes over the Pharisees, who, who turned the tables in the temple, who's coming again in judgment. He's the one who comes in judgment. In John chapter 5, it says that all judgment has been given to the Son. 
And I, the tragedy of what we've done in the church is, is it's, it's produced a sort of domesticated Jesus. We've like stripped him down. We like thinking about Jesus being a, a lamb, but we forget about the lion of Judah. But those two are one. And even the lamb is described as coming in judgment. In Revelation 6 and 15, it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. From the wrath of the lamb. God's justice is just as real as his grace and his mercy. He is at once both the lion and the lamb. Do not underestimate the justice and the judgment of God. This is what this story is reminding us of. But listen to me carefully. I said at the beginning, isn't this sort of a harsh judgment? Isn't this sort of, uh, you could say, erratic judgment? But the reality is that we all now, you see, all deserve judgment like Ananias and Sapphira. And it is but for the patient mercy of God that we are not consumed. God can intervene every day in this way and still be just and still be good. And so the story of Ananias and Sapphira casts a sort of view of preventative justice for the church. We see, if you think back, right? I mean, this is easy for us to do. We don't even have to think back. We can just see it today. Time and time again, church scandals and church frauds. But the story of Ananias and Sapphira reminds us how seriously God takes fraud in his church. And this can bring comfort to us. The intervention of God can bring comfort to us. That he longs to draw his church towards true virtue, towards holiness. And so we can be thankful for God's intervention. Because the worst judgment of all, we don't, we don't think about this, but the worst judgment of all is actually for God to stay his end. For God to, to, to let sin go unchecked. Let it wreak its havoc in our world and in the church. But the truth, the ultimate truth, is that God has not left sin unchecked. This is the story of the gospel. Rather, God came through Jesus to show us what true virtue looks like. That true virtue isn't motivated in self-seeking. It's not motivated in self-interest, but rather it's motivated about a love for the other. It's motivated by a love for God. And so Jesus perfectly, he loves his father. And rather than self-promoting, Jesus perfectly, he seeks to glorify the Father. And rather than trying to self-protect, what does Jesus do? He grows to the cross and he lays down his life for us so that we can find protection in him. And so when you see that he had to die for you, when you see that you were that bad, when you see that you were that rotten, that Jesus had to go to the cross for you, what happens to your pride? It dies. It begins to wither in the face of what Jesus has done. And then when you see the affirming love that the resurrected Jesus offers to you, 
that even death itself can't separate you from his love, what happens to your fear? It begins to wither in the glory of his love. It begins to die. And this changes us, right? This changes us away from being hearts structured on fear and pride in order to produce these things. When we gaze at the love of God. And so our hearts no longer just need to be restrained, right? Propped up. They can be changed. They can be transformed. This is the message of the gospel. This is what Jesus has come to bring. And so to the question, how can a loving God judge? Well, despite stories like this, despite the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, we can be confident in the love of God because he himself has offered in death to take the consequences of that judgment on himself. And so it doesn't have to be that way. And God hasn't stayed his hand. He's intervened. And so, and when he intervenes, right, you see that he exercises his mercy, not at the expense of his justice. Justice is still upheld, but he goes right through it by passing through death through us. So to our original question, why do we need God to create a society like this? Why do we need the king in order to create this vision of the kingdom of God? Why do we need the king in order to have a society that cares for the poor and the needy, the vulnerable, to be sharing our resources? Well, because our goodness is deceptive and because God's just intervention is needed. And so I want to move into a time of response. And my response today is is rather simple. Don't try and hide from God. (laughs) Like we saw our goodness, it's inherently deceptive. It's too often propped up running on fear and pride, but it can't go on forever. Eventually it will run out and God will intervene. You can go on for a while. It's going to catch up with you. Um, When I was traveling with my brother to illustrate this in the U.S. a number of years ago, I've, I've told you a few of these stories. But at one point, the diesel Jetta, we were driving, uh, the dash lights started to flicker, the radio stopped working, the lights went out, and the engine started to sputter, and the car died. And we made it, because we, we felt it dying, we made it to a, a Walmart. <laughs> um, now, one of the differences that you need to know between a diesel car and a gasoline car is that diesel cars cannot run without the electricity from the battery uh, keeping the engine going. Whereas a gasoline car, you can just, once you've jump-started the car, like you don't really need the battery anymore. It's just, it's kind of there, but you would be able to keep driving. The engine would keep running. And so the problem with the car was that the, the thing that charges the battery, the alternator had uh, broken. And so we had the, the car diagnosed and alternator's broken, okay, and we can't keep driving without you know, the electrical from the battery functioning at all times because it's a diesel car. Okay, we get it. And then we're like, okay, when's the part? Like, can we just fix it now? And what we found out is that in Heartland America, uh, like practically nobody drives these little fuel-efficient diesel cars. Um, And so getting an alternator was going to take like three days. Um, But we wanted to keep doing. So what we did is we bought a brand new fully charged battery and a set of jumper cables. 
And we went out to the car and we hooked those jumper cables up to the battery in the front. We closed the hood, ran the jumper cables around, put the window down, ran them into the car, put a live car battery between my brother and I, and we drove on. And with each full charge of those two batteries, we could get about eight hours of difference or, or distance. So while we were still able to run the car, the alternator was actually broken, right? But my question for you is this. How many of you are trying to run your life propped up on the batteries of fear and pride while the alternator of your heart is actually broken? You can go on for years and years maintaining your goodness, right? Never actually having dealt with the root of the problem. Never actually having that heart transformation. But what you need to know is that eventually it will run out. Eventually, there will be an intervention. Eventually, you'll find those batteries dead. <laughs> and you'll be shocked, right? You'll be like, what? What just happened? What? Why, why, why am I suddenly behaving this way? Why can't I just be good for the sake of being good and running it in these ways? You know, I, I didn't know I was like that. How could I ever do this? Well, the reason why is because you never dealt with the problem in your heart. You had restrained your heart, but you never actually sought change for your heart from the Spirit of God. And so maybe you're listening to all this. And you know when I talk about a heart being motivated by fear and pride that I'm actually talking about you. Or maybe you're living in unrepentant sin. And I want to invite you during our time of response today to receive prayer, to repent, to come forward. This area at the front here, um, I'm going to invite at the end, following the prayer, our city group leaders down and all of those who would like to receive prayer. (sighs) Don't try and hide from God. He sees all things, right? He knows your secret sins. It says at the end of this text that great fear fell upon the church. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is right to fear the Lord, to fear his judgment. And so, yes, you can fear the throne of judgment, but that much more, you do not need to doubt God's throne of grace. This is grace is ready and available to you in this place. What happened in this story, the sort of startling prophetic insight that Peter had, it's rare, it's rare in scripture, but it's very real. Um, Some of you might remember my buddy Dan, who uh, was here a couple of years ago for Relevant McGill. And, uh, Dan was in a group, like a sort of change group type thing with a couple other guys where they would pray for each other, they would read scripture, they would hold each other accountable. And one night, they're all in university. One night in university, Dan had a dream. And this dream was different from other dreams. It was strikingly vivid. And when he woke up from that dream, he knew two things for sure. One was that his friend who was single had slept with a girl that night. And two, he knew the name of the girl, even though he had never met her. 
His friend came back from class later that day. And Dan went to him and he said, hey man, is there anything you want to tell me? At first his friend said no, but then he began to weep. And he broke down. And he confessed what he had done. And Dan said, was this her name? And he said it out. He said, that's, that's it. How did you know? And Dan told the story. He told how he had had that dream. And he said, you know, the only reason that God revealed this to me, I know the only reason that God has revealed this for me is not for your condemnation, but for your good. It was not for his condemnation, but for his good. Because the repentance, repentance, we tend to think of it as a negative thing, but it's always for our good. And so Dan's friend repented. It actually changed his entire life. It freed him to be the man that God had called him to be. And so repentance is for our good. It's something that God calls us to do at all times. It's actually part of the Christian life. It's not just something you've done one time in the past. It's part of the lifestyle of a Christian. Because we recognize that our heart is this twisted factory of idols that are even the goodness that we do ends up being inherently so much of the time deceptive. And so we need to bring ourselves in this lifestyle of repentance continually before the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. And so repentance is not just a change of behavior. It's a change of heart. It's turning away turning away from the things that you're trying to sustain yourself in, and it's turning to God, the source of goodness and grace and glory itself, himself. And it's him alone that can change you. It's not me who can change you. It's him alone that can change you. And so how do you repent? It's first to acknowledge your sin. Take responsibility uh, for what you've done. Uh, so, so often we try and skirt around uh, the sins that we've done. We try and blame other people or circumstances. But to repent of sin is to take first responsibility uh, for it. And then confess it to God. Recognize that your sin is ultimately against God and against, against him, right, alone. And so uh, seek his help. Seek the Spirit's ministering help in that sin. And don't... <laughs> Repentance isn't penance. It's not self-loathing. We're not going and, and, and beating ourselves up. It's not a sort of selfish regret. But godly repentance, while self-loathing produces death, godly prudence, uh, repentance produces life. And so that's what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you towards repentance for life because repentance is always good and it's a lifestyle. And so will, for those of you who the Spirit of God is speaking to, will, will you come and receive prayer? Please, I beg of you, don't try and hide your sin from God. I'm going to pray for us now, and then we'll move into that time of response. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your justice. And I pray, Jesus, for anyone here that you have been speaking to, that your spirit has been revealing things to, that might be motivated by fear or pride or anything else, Jesus. 
I pray that you would touch their heart, that you would draw them towards you. They wouldn't be ashamed or have fear of coming forward and seeking uh, healing, of seeking your life, Jesus, but that they would turn to you and find help and healing in this time of need. Would you draw us to godly repentance, Jesus? Would you produce the change that our hearts so desperately need? We have none but you. God, fill this room with your spirit, I pray. We need you so desperately. In Jesus' name, amen.